Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Bruce Sonnen at Van Duzer Vineyards in Dallas. It's August 19th, 2022. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us thank today. Thank you for having me. It's fantastic. Uh, first question for you. We usually start with why wine. In your case, I'm going to start with why grapes. Why grapes? So long story short, basically, is I kind of lucked into the industry. Um, growing up in Idaho, I grew up as a, as a farm kid, so I knew a lot about farming and whatnot. Went to the University of Idaho. Uh, was studying egg business, um, met my girlfriend, which is now my wife, and we decided just to kind of leave Idaho, come to Oregon, and I started to do uh, landscaping in Portland and was working in Portland for about seven, eight years. And uh, one of the last projects that I ended up uh, landscaping was Domain Serene Winery. And uh, it was happened right around the time uh, 9-11 happened, so in 2020, or 2000, uh, the, the, or the recession was starting to happen, starting to kick off, and in 2001, after 9-11, that pretty much put a kibosh to a lot of stuff. And the insta installation part of the landscapes that I was doing was basically drying up, and I needed something else to kind of focus on. So I interviewed with Ken and Grace Evanstad at that time um, to be a like a facilities manager or like a, a property manager for those guys at the time. Um, the wage that I needed in order to uh, kind of help sustain my, my family and whatnot wasn't enough to, that they were willing to pay at that time because they were fairly small at that point. Mm -hmm. um, so, but they passed my name on to their vineyard management company because they knew that his guy had just left at, you know, right after harvest that year. And uh, basically I kind of lucked into it. So in January I started working with vine tenders at that time and was basically a dedicated assistant vineyards manager for uh, Joel Myers managing uh, the Domain Serene properties. He hired another gentleman uh, to work the rest of the properties that Vine Tenders managed at that time, but I was pretty much focused on all the Domain Serene properties, so the development of Jerusalem Hill, Winery Hill, and the expansions that they were doing up at uh, Domain Serene Estate at that time back in uh, 2002. So 2002 was my first year in the industry. And being a farm kid, I knew what a tractor was, I knew what a disc was. Uh, the, the funny part of it is, you know, I'm used to using 36, 42, 48-foot implements, now I'm using four and five-foot implements. So growing up as a kid, you know, you'd work 160, 200-acre field in a day. In a vineyard, you're lucky if you get six or seven acres done in a day on certain implements. So it's just all, all semantics on, on how you do certain things. So I'm going to come back to all that in a second, but I want to back up a little bit before before you came to Oregon. Tell me about kind of growing up in Idaho. What were you, uh, as you grew up and as you went to school, what were you thinking your, your career path would be? I did not want to be a farmer at that point. Um, seeing all the, 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 the hardships that my parents had and whatnot, I mean, basically, you do everything your whole, whole calendar year just to focus on one month opportunity to get the crops off without mother nature hailing on it, raining on it, or anything like that, to get your year's paycheck, it's extremely stressful. And I wanted to try to do something different, so then I went to the, call, to the U of I for egg business. Um, that didn't suit me as well. I uh, met a really great lady 
uh, who's now my wife, and we moved to Oregon and thought I could rule the world and start doing something different, being a landscape uh, installer and whatnot. Great career, fun, fun task, fun job. Um, worked at Nike, uh, the expansion at Nike for about five years, and uh, was, was really proud of the work that I did. And so, and coming back full circle then with the farming aspect of it, basically I get paid to be a farmer and I get a bi-weekly paycheck. So I get, I get the benefits of both sides. So I'm back being a farmer again, but you know, I get paid, which is good. And if there's any stress or, I still have the stress of making sure that the work that I do fits for the owners that I save the owners money as much as I can, but still it's on their shoulders if something happens, you know, I, I still get paid for what I do. <laughs> so I'm curious about, you mentioned you grew up, grew up with farm work, we also mentioned how different grapes are than, than what you grew up with. So tell me about the learning process for you. Once, you. once you dove into grapes and that became what you were doing, tell me about learning vineyard work and learning the difference with growing Great. grapes. So when I first started with uh, vine tenders at, with Joel Myers, it was around the 15th or so of, of January. And that co happened to coincide directly with the start of Chemeketa Community College with their wine studies program. Um, Joel was gracious enough to uh, en enroll me into the college. So I was able to do the wine studies program for the, for the vineyard side of it concurrently while I was working for Joel on the vineyard side of it. So when I started in January, it was still the pruning season. So at the college, we were still learning about pruning as well. Where it kind of helped a lot is I could learn the book side of it at the same time while learning the industry side of it. So if there's ever any questions on what the school was teaching versus how Joel was teaching it, you know, I could ask the question and see what the differences were, why we do it differently in the field, why the school teaches it differently. And then that opened up my eyes to all the different things that can be done in the industry. There is no one perfect way of doing everything. Everybody has their own way of doing it. And everything that you do to Pinot Noir or grapes in general affects the final outcome. So it all depends on how you do it, when you do it. Mm -hmm. The main thing is doing it always on time. Mm -hmm. So, and that was instilled on me with, with vine tenders also. Mm -hmm. You gotta make sure you have enough people to get all the jobs done <laughs> when you do it. So that way you don't get behind and everything's done, done correctly. Mm -hmm. And so then while going to school, I uh, ended up transferring most of my credits that I had at the U of I to Chemeketa. That basically took a year of the, of the college off. The year and a half that I spent at Chemeketa then going part-time, I was able to get the degree, was the fourth one to graduate in the wine studies program. <laughs> and the only reason I was the fourth one is because my last name is Son and the other gal in front of me had a different letter, so she went, you know, basically third. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been third. <laughs> and now that uh, studies program is, is huge. It was before the... Wine Studies um, Center was set up on Eola. Mm -hmm. We were still going to the Schmeckata campus. Back then, we had like 15 or 20 vines just outside of the Schmeckata building that we were playing with. Um, yeah, it, so it's, it's blown up huge now. It's great to see it. You mentioned the, the connection of working both seeing the industry side and the educational side at the same time. Mm -hmm. What were the biggest surprises for you uh, as you were doing that in difference between kind of learning theoretically and then actually seeing it in practice? A lot of it is about just there's the way the books teach you about how to do it right and then there's the actual in-person doing it in the field. You know, what, what, what you can actually do in the field and also trying to teach the, the workers and the crews how to properly do it, but yet do it in an, uh, an efficient manner and whatnot to, to make sure you can get passed over all the acres that you have the, to maintain. 
-hmm. So ideally when, for example, when you do a, when you're doing the canopy management through the, through the growing summer, all the job tasks usually take about two weeks to do. So like if you're doing shoe positioning, you have about two weeks. And then the next job starts and it's another two weeks. The next job starts is about two weeks. That directly coincides with the spray program. So you could constantly be keep always moving your crews around away from the sprayer. So a sprayer could be happening on one site, you could be working on another site and then flip-flop the sprayers. And then it's all about you know efficiencies and, and keeping the people moving, knowing when you need a crew up, knowing when you need a mm -hmm. crew down. Mm -hmm. So so you mentioned that that was the, the nascent era of the Chemeketa program. What was your impression of the Chemeketa program at that time? It was very small. I mean, we had a teacher, it was Al McDonald at that time. And uh, it was very infantile at the time. It was great. It was a very, very fun program. Um, we did have a, a soils teacher as well, uh, Alan Campbell, Adam Campbell. Adam. Adam Campbell, excuse me. Uh, and so uh, took the soils class with him online. Um, it, it was it was very interesting because I mean, growing up for myself, I was a dryland wheat, barley, pea farmer. You know, I didn't deal with grapes. Where when I was in landscaping, we learned about how to groom everything and make everything nice and pretty, and and make it nice to make it look good in front of a building. Vineyard management is about similar to that. Mm -hmm. You got to groom the vines. You got to make them look pretty. Domain Serene, obviously, they have a better. They want to have their properties looking more pristine and whatnot, and so that transitioned directly into my knowledge on the landscape side of it, about how to make stuff look pretty. Transitioned that into the onto the vineyard side as well, and also granted, not just making it look pretty, it also makes the vines healthier, you know, better, keeps the disease pressure down, so on. So the, the Domain Serene project was pretty young at that time too, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your initial impressions of, the, of their project and kind of of Oregon wine in the industry as you started to see it and see the, see the vineyards and meet the people. So at the time when I started with, Domain, or with, with Vine Tenders, uh, Domain Serene had just purchased a property down in Hopewell, down at Jerusalem Hill, so they had just planted uh, once uh, 18 acres or so was in production, another 20 or so acres was in second leaf, and then we were planting the rest of that property, about 30 acres down uh, at Jerusalem Hill at that time. Um, two Barns was another project that uh, Joel was working on developing. Uh, Guadalupe Vineyard was another project in the, in the works. Penarash Vineyards that started a couple years later. Uh, Highland Vineyard does another project that started later. So basically I got to work with the who's who in Oregon wine. And, and that was fantastic. So for the eight years I was at Vine Tenders, I learned a lot, learned a lot of different ways of growing grapes, managing grapes, and growing it specifically for, for the winemaker. Um, a benefit of how Joel had things set up at his, at his work is that the majority of the fruit that he grew was grown for that specific winery. So it wasn't like an owner that had 20 acres and that he was trying to sell it to seven or eight different wineries. It all went to one, one location. Mm -hmm. So that it made it a lot easier for me to deal with, you know, one winemaker on one property versus eight winemakers on one mm -hmm. property. Mm -hmm. It's the same amount of handholding that you have to do. Tell, tell me about working for Joel. It was great. Learned a lot. Learned a lot from Joel. Um, he, you know, being a Duarte rep, uh, he also, you know, taught me about the differences in vines, um, the differences in what clones do well, which clones don't do well. Um, 
when you see a property and how to how to gauge the property on how to do installs, where to put the headlands, where to put the turnarounds, why you would put the headlands, why you would put the roads, why you would plant in a certain direction, why you want to plant in a certain direction. So it 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 was a really really rapid upgrowth on knowledge for what what I have now. Mm -hmm. it, it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. You talked about working with the winemakers and kind of growing the specifications. So tell me about in those in those days, in the vine tenders days, how many different sort of farming styles were you working at the same time? It was primarily all either live certified or certified sustainable. So um, the majority of it was was with the live program, and if it wasn't uh, with that, it basically was just you you do what needed to be done but you didn't throw the book at it, you know. You, you, everything was on the softer approach, you know, you never used really harsh chemicals, you never used, you know, products that you never needed needed to unless you absolutely had to. Mm -hmm. You started with the softer approaches first, and then if that didn't work, then you moved, moved up and moved up and moved up. Mm -hmm. But Joel definitely did have one spray program, and I still have it memorized in my head, on what the fungicide program is. You know, because back then there wasn't as many different fungicide classes. You only had about three, and this is the rotation you use, this is why you use it, and this is why you do what you do. Mm -hmm. And it's, I still have it written to memory. <laughs> and it works, it works great, it's a fantastic program. So from that time, are there particular vineyard projects or accomplishments that you're particularly proud of? The, the Highland Vineyard one, that was a huge expansion that, that we did. Um, Panarash, that, uh, that was a fun one. Um, just because it was on the middle of a hillside, that was a bunch of uh, overgrown Christmas trees, basically. And they just went in there and you know, raised out all the trees, made all these burn piles. And then you had to determine where the road was going to go to the winery where the winery location was going to be and then plant the vineyard all the way around it. So, but then too, like with anything, you have little little nuances that happen, like they needed dirt for a specific project and so you just got done laying out the vineyard in one area and the contractor needed dirt, so they go and they raise out all the sticks that you just placed out there, grabbed the soil, filled in what they needed, and then you had to go back and relay out the sticks again. But it did, there's, Tons and tons of projects that we did, mm -hmm. you know, working working with Joel. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was great. Learned a lot. How did you see the industry maturing in those time in those days? So from then, if I remember right, there's only about 1,700 acres in the Yamhill Willamette Valley area, and now we're close to what about 10,000 acres or something like that. So it's definitely ballooned a lot, just over the course of the last 20 21 years that I've been here. Um, a lot of more man or a lot more managers, more companies. Um, some companies uh, used to have, you know, the owner of the vineyard management company, now the son or the lead worker that used to be under the, the owner of that now has taken over the company. So just seeing the maturity level go up, um, some things that those guys used to be able to do now they can't do because they're too old, like myself in particular. <laughs> so then you're having to teach somebody else to do that particular job. Um, learning also how to relinquish that responsibility and teach the other guys how to do it. That that was a trial for me over the last couple of years, but I'm starting to figure out that I need to do it. You know, my back's not as strong as what it used to be. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's a lot about, now it's all about teaching as best you can, mm -hmm. bringing up the new, the new class. So tell me about uh, what happens after vine tenders. So after vine tenders, then I worked with uh, Sterling Wine Grapes for about a year, year and a half. Um, after Sterling Wine Grapes went to Evergreen Egg, 
and worked with those guys for about nine months. And then after uh, the part of the division of Evergreen Egg kind of fell apart, then that's when this position opened up and I started working here in May of 2012. What about this place appealed to you? One, it was uh, basically you, I was the on-site vineyards manager. So whatever I wanted to do, however I wanted to do it, that was my decision in conjunction with the winemakers that I was working with here. Mm -hmm. So I worked with Jerry Murray, Florent Murdier, and now uh, Eric Mesquit. What was the, the con, sort of the condition of the vineyard when you got here and what did you, what was your kind of your initial goal or initial task? So the, when we got here uh, in 2012, that was stemming from the, uh, an old way of, of farming the, the property. The old way of farming the property was that you basically grew as much as you could to get as much fruit off of it as you could in order to get as much wine as you could. So quality was, was good. It was, always, it was always a great brand, but it was just a lot of it. And so they, the owner wanted to transition and start to do something different, get more concentration, make more of a higher end Pinot Noir and, and a couple different varieties and whatnot. So uh, that was my task is to try to figure out how to, how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so first 2012 when I started in May, the pruning was already done. All those decisions were already made. And that's pruning basically sets up how your whole year is gonna go. If you miss prune something, that vine is gonna be goofed up for that whole entire growing season and potentially three years after that. So the pruning was already done, we had to deal with it. The growing season was, was odd that year, that was in 2012, it was an extremely hot year. Um, it was an extremely low crop year for us here, painfully low, coming off of two really late wet years in 2010 and 2011. So it, it made it look good for me when I first got here because I was so far under budget, it was crazy. <laughs> but a lot of it was because there wasn't as much fruit and just the way I do things a little bit differently than what the previous managers were doing. Um, also, we never irrigated as much, so then we keep the canopy as smaller. Um, one of the things I noticed though after harvest, as normally the, the leaves on Pinot Noir plants, they turn yellow and then they drop, right? If you have an over vigorous section of the property, that vigorous section will stay green, turn to orange, and then yellow in the weaker spots. This place looked like a Christmas tree. There was so many green sections in the property that it was, it was baffling. So we went out then with um, drain pipe, uh, white drain tile pipes that were cut about you know six, eight inches tall and then put them on the T-post where those green sections were out in the vineyard to delineate where those green sections were. So that way the following year in 2013, we could prune those sections differently and we could cultivate those sections differently. One of the main things that we implemented in 2013 was a the cultivation program on the green sections not cultivate and on the drier sections where they turned yellow to definitely cultivate those ones. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the next two or three years, the Christmas tree effect kind of calmed down. So now the whole entire block turns golden yellow after harvest, which is what the idea is. Mm -hmm. Basically when you come to or at Van Duzer, for example, we have some rows that are over 220 vines long. And they're 12 foot rows, so it only takes about 600 vines to equal an acre. Mm -hmm. So you have three rows, that's an acre's worth of fruit. 
So how do I get that whole entire acre's worth of fruit ripe at one time when I have five different soil types in that section? So that's where the, the, the different cultivation practices came in. And it took, like I said, about two or three years to get them kind of in balance mm -hmm. with the pruning techniques, doing, you know, shortening the canes up in the drier sections, long, and lengthening them out or leaving more buds out in other sections in order to devigorate the vines or invigorate the weaker vines, mm -hmm. then it, over time it, it started to balance them out. Plus teaching the crew why you're doing what you're doing. That was the other hard part, is that these guys were taught then to just lay down two big canes and go, and then you just bud accordingly later. Mm -hmm. But if you set it up properly at first, some vines only want to grow six shoots. That's all that they want to do. They don't want to lay, you know, if you lay down 14 buds, they won't grow 14 buds. They just want to grow six. Mm -hmm. So if you only lay down six, they'll go up to the top wire, you'll get fruit off of those six shoots, everything will be fine, everybody will be happy. And, and it's, it's work, and it's, been, and it's been working great. You talked about uh, you had to kind of see post-harvest. You had to see that green effect to see. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about learning the rest of the vineyard and learning what you had here. You talked about all those soil types. That's that's a lot to deal with. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious how, how long it took you to start to kind of understand the rest of the vineyard and start to put some of those ideas into practice. So there was a couple sections of the property, for example, that uh, had phylloxera. So we tore out uh, 10 acres of the property knowing that those that particular 10 acres was planted end to end, so there were 220 vines long as well, that was going through a dip, had uh, sandy soil on top, a mediocre soil in the middle, a cove soil in the bottom, and then another uh, woodburn soil at the very tip. You know, woodburn is deep, very vigorous. The cove soil is very wet in the spring where it's almost to the point tractors get stuck, but then after about a, a month of dry time, it gets so freaking hard and, and cracked, you know, it, 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 it's not, not conducive really for planting grapes in. Mm -hmm. And then up on top where the sandy soil is, that's definitely a section that needs irrigation. Needs irrigation. So when you lay it out the vineyard, the sandy section gets planted to one variety, the cove section, now that's my new headland, and in the other section, that's pinot gris. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we still planted the rows straight. You could drive through the, 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 the cove soil section where the headland is now and still continue to spray through it, but now you delineated pinot noir for the higher end section and pinot gris for the, the lower end soil section. Mm -hmm. But the pinot gris loves the wetter, deeper soils. You get better fruit, mm -hmm. more fruit, and it's uh, in the end more profitable for the owner. Which is what my job is. To, I mean, if I'm not making the owner money, then I don't have a job. <laughs> Basically, long short of it. You brought up earlier that you've been, you worked with, worked with multiple winemakers since you've been here. Uh, how does that change your job when a new winemaker? You're working with a different winemaker. For here? Yeah, I'm just as you're working for a different winemaker here, how does it change? Um, basically, as long as they know what I what I've done in the past, as long as they know what your farming practices are. There's only so, so many ways that you can do a certain job. A lot of it is then you just have to spell out the timing on what they want. There's a couple of key tasks that they might want to get done sooner, one of them being leaf pull and another one being fruit thinning. So as long as those two are ironed out ahead of time, that you know that these guys like it either an early leaf pull or they don't care as much about the timing of the leaf pull, and same with fruit thinning, then, then everything else is, is status quo. Um, I haven't really dabbled very much in biodynamic or organic farming. Um, I still trend to lay sway more towards uh, synthetic chemicals because I don't want to 
not be able to not pick a fruit, pick a crop. Mm -hmm. Although organics are coming in with a lot better chemistries, back then they didn't have very very many chemistries or as well or as good of chemistries as what you have with uh, synthetic chemicals. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I just I would prefer to keep fruit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that that's my job. Mm -hmm. How has the vineyard been changed since you've been here? How has the vineyard changed here? Mm -hmm. So we went, it used to have extreme highs and extreme lows. So there'd be one year that the crop level was huge and then the next year you'd have a really low year. And it, so it went from really big up and downs to more of a, a wave, mm -hmm. you know, a wave trickle. Instead of having the extreme, extreme heavy crops and extreme light crops, we're more of a, uh, a standard level approach. Mm -hmm. and different pruning techniques that we did uh, when I got here instead of having uh, two two-foot canes we transitioned to one four-foot cane and what that en enables you to do is to keep the the bud numbers basically the same or a little less but then you're leaving buds that are more fruitful on a four-foot cane so you can get better crop estimates and have a more uh, a, a better approach to how to do fruit thinning mm -hmm. it's, it's less less um, compacted in the head. It's a little bit more open, a little bit more more arid on single cane pruning versus double cane pruning. Plus it's a little bit cheaper as well because instead of tying two, you're only tying one. So just the little little things, little little changes. Uh, you talked about teaching uh, earlier. So tell me about teaching and, and how that, how your teaching has evolved and, and what it looks like for you now as you're teaching people sort of the, the next yeah. generation. I don't get as mad as often, so that, that's <laughs> the big one. Um, when I first got here, there was uh, one, one tractor driver, pruner guy that was pretty adamant on his way of, of doing things. And after the first year of realizing that he wasn't kind of sticking to the, the pruning program that I had in place, the following year we had him mark his post put an X on the end post and, and mark it. So that way as their growing season progressed that year, he had his style and then we had the other five pruners their style, which is my style. And when the growing season was happening, you could see the five rows were beautiful and the other ones are, they were good, but they could have been better. And so after that, everybody was kind of on board. So, and I, I never had to get mad and that's the main thing. So that, and tr also then now we're, we're big enough to the point where we picked up another, uh, vineyard site in Dundee, so we have another 50 acres that we're farming. And so it's right around 130, 135 acres that we manage at Van Duzer. So I needed uh, some help. And so we hired an assistant uh, last year and he's back again right now for harvest. And so just trying to teach him the differences in how I do things versus what he was taught at other places where he used to work before, mm -hmm. why I do what I do. Um, understanding from him what he had done in the past and try to take those things that he had, he had learned from other places. One big thing that I took from him was his uh, fertilizer spray program and that, that increased the quality or what looks to be increasing the quality this year at Van Duzer. So I grabbed that from him last year. Um, I pretty much stayed with my program last year but then implemented some of his stuff that he, he had previously uh, here and it's, mm -hmm. it's been working great. 
we were talking briefly before the interview about your the the vineyard you used to uh, Norris McKinley Vineyard that you've mm -hmm. been working on for a while, and now you talk about the Dundee Vineyard. So you have a, other vineyard sites you've worked with in addition to the estate vineyard here. Uh, kind of the same question from before. Tell me about uh, getting to understand those kind of vineyards and and it, what how much do you have to adjust from what your kind of ideal philosophy is based on what the vineyard based on what kind of vineyard you walk into do with it. So basically, it's always been about how everything is is pruned and if it's not pruned properly it's not going to grow properly and so as long as you do all the do all the tasks correctly you can get get you'll then be able to determine what other aspects you have to change so for example if if the vine is, is pruned right and you have the right number of buds down and the the canopy or the the fruiting wire is full and it's still over vigorous and it's still growing over the top you have to hedge it three four times in a year you have to change something else you can't lay down more buds you can't do all the different tasks so then what you do is you don't cultivate mm -hmm. or, yeah so you leave it grass grass if it's not vigorous enough then that's when you, you change your cultivation programs um, when you are on a site for upwards to more than three or four years, then you can start to dial those those pro, pro, those programs in. Mm -hmm. So, for example, at the Norris McKinley site, it was cultivated every row, every other row end to end for the whole block. And there's certain blocks that didn't need to be cultivated. And so that was one of the first things that we implemented is not cultivate those blocks. But then again, everything that you do to a grape plant takes two to three years for you to actually see the final effect. Mm -hmm. So fortunately we had the contract for five years, so the last three years is when we were able to see see the differences that we were doing. Certain sections of the vineyard, certain sections of the of the row would need to be cultivated because of how the undulations in the property were. So that's how we would leave grass, cultivate, grass, cultivate. Mm -hmm. And it it's all about just seeing seeing and watching the vines grow and making the adjustments as, as you're going in the growing season. So the winery here has a partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I'm curious mm -hmm. about how that came about and what you do to help maintain it. So in 2009, uh, the previous vineyards manager, Rebecca Sweet, joined in with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to create uh, uh, the partnership program to try to reclaim areas back for the Fender's Blue Butterfly. Um, and so in, with that partnership, what it did is it allowed, I, I can go back two seconds here. The Fender's Blue Butterfly, they found that uh, back in, I think it's 2007 or 2008. And it was a butterfly that they had originally thought was extinct. And they found it down in the, in the Corvallis, uh, Corvallis Slough mm -hmm. first, came to the Basket Slough, found it up here in our Basket Slough area. They made a proposal to the federal government and got a uh, $35 million grant to work over the next 15, 20 years to increase habitat area for the for the butterfly. And with our close proximity to the Basket Slough, made it a, a shoe-in for us to work with those guys to um, create habitat. We already had on the west side of our property, we have what we call an upland prairie habitat that had a plant that that butterfly likes to lay eggs on. It's called a Kincaid lupin. Um, so we already had that population of plants here we never had any butterflies. They tested in 2009, 10, 11, and 12, and 13, and for five years straight, we had no butterflies. On the west side, or the east side of the property in our oak habitat, uh, we didn't have any of the nectar 
pollen or nectar plants that that butterfly gets attracted to. Mm -hmm. And so with the, with, with the partnership program with the Fish and Wildlife, we they went in there first with mowers, you know, bobcat mowers, cut down all the blackberries, scotch broom, kind of liberated the area and whatnot in order for them then to come in and plant those nectar plants that would attract a butterfly to the property. Um, when I got here in 2012, uh, that would have been after three years of them mowing the grass, I had a, a gentleman farmer in Kings Valley that was a herdsman that liked uh, to graze, you know, basically sheep in open areas. If you had an area, he'll come and build the fence. I maintain it, you know, so there's basically no, no cost is, mm -hmm. associated with it. We just give them water that they need for the sheep. He'll fence it off and, and, and graze it. That particular year, it was kind of too late for him to do it. But so he said he'd started in, in 2013. That had kind of happened about a, after about a month of, of that conversation, I get a phone call out of the blue that he had a gentleman from Southern Oregon that they were out of feed down south. It was a really dry drought year that year. Their sheep were hungry, they needed something to eat. And I says, yeah, come out, I'll get them mowed, you put the fence up, they'll be ready to roll. Within a week, there was a semi-truck here with 440 head of sheep that got delivered for a, a, the 16-acre piece on this other side, 440 head. It took them about two and a half, three weeks, and that thing was mowed down to a golf course. It was fantastic. <laughs> and so what that ended up doing for us is, one, when you mow, when grass is like four foot, five foot tall, and you mow it, all that biomass is still sitting there. No other real plants or anything like that can grow up through the grass. With the sheep, they eat it. And when it comes out the end, it's a little bitty pellets and BBs out the backside, and that kind of helps, you know, with the, the organic content of the soil and whatnot. Plus, it liberates the ground underneath for the for the for the flowering plants to come up and through. Plus, certain certain parts of that section had oak trees that had previously been cut down, so there were stumps out there. But the operator couldn't remember where the stumps were. Now that the sheep had eaten everything down. Basically, they eat all the blackberry leaves up about three foot tall, all the Scotch broom three foot tall, all the poison oak up three foot tall, so you could see everything under, on down below it. We took a flail mower in there, flailed it all nice and flat, and it was pristine. Now, after that, every year it made it that much easier to continue to farm it and keep it under control, allowed for uh, acorn woodpeckers to move in now because the grass and the blackberries are out of the way, so they can actually harvest the acorns and then go up and peck them into the oak trees. So we have five or six now breeding pairs of acorn woodpeckers on site. The forbs were then able to flourish in those sections as well. We got the butterfly attracted to Van Duzer in 2014. That was a, a, a story just in itself. When they found, we had four guys from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife out there with butterfly nets going after the butterfly, right? And they go out there and they, they're catching these butterflies and there's there's another butterfly that looks very similar to the, the the Fender's Blue. The only difference is, is on the Fender's Blue, it has two stripes of dots on the wing. The silver only has a single. So all these butterflies that they're finding is a, is a single. It only has one set of stripes on it. This one guy found, finds one and it has two stripes on it, however very faint. It was an old, older female. And uh, the dude like freaks out, loses his mind. I kid you not, it's almost like they found a baby or a baby for the first time. They took close to 300 pictures of this <laughs> butterfly. So we we ended up getting one of the pictures, we framed it, put it up. Uh, we won the live Salmon Safe Award that year as well, just for our reclamation projects that we did. Um, 
congruently every year after that, the population of the butterfly has quadrupled. So the first year we found one, the next year they found four, the year after that it was 16. And so now we just have a, a, a standard population of the Fender's butterfly on, on the site. So it kind of coins back to that uh, baseball movie, if you build it, they'll come. It takes a little while, but it, it does. That does, it can happen. It, it's pretty cool to be able to use the site for more than just yeah. grapes, right? To do mm -hmm. other things with it as well. That's pretty exciting. Yep. So I'm curious about the, the growth of Van Duzer. Obviously, you mentioned more properties now, uh, uh, an idea of a, kind of a different wine style as you were coming in. So in the, in the decade or so that you've been here, uh, what else has changed at Van Duzer in terms of the, the growth of the brand and the, and the growth of the property here? So uh, the, the owner wanted to get a new, a new site, um, uh, more of like a flagship site. And granted, the Van Duzer AVA that, that was something that came into effect here too since we've been here mm -hmm. uh, with the Van Duzer Corridor AVA, but he wanted to have a, another site that he could build another tasting room on in order to uh, increase a, another brand or mm -hmm. another label for him. So that's what the, the new property up in the Dundee Hills kind of came, came forward. Mm -hmm. And as far as wine styles here, where my job kind of starts and stops is I basically grow the fruit for the winemaker that's here, and then once the fruit's kind of delivered, then I'm kind of off touch. I like to taste it, I like to drink it, but when it comes to the the semantics on the different things that they do on making the wine, that that's above my pay grade. <laughs> and you know, it, it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch how these guys do things. Um, it's fun to watch how they can take. You know, I, I for example, I farm 37 blocks here at Van Duzer, and when we pick those blocks, those 37 blocks will transition into somewhere to 70 or 80 different lots in the fermenters in the winery. And then from those 80 lots, they transfer them down to the barrels and they create even more lots with the barrels. So I just equate it to like having your own paint palette. You know, you start out with 37 colors, now you got 80 colors, now you got, you know, 300 different colors. And then so then with, with those guys on how they can take those different colors and then make the different bottles of wine, it, it's fascinating on how they can do that. So you mentioned uh, earlier kind of your entree in Oregon wine about 20 years ago. Um, tell me about what the differences, the changes you've seen in the Oregon wine industry since you've been a part of it. What are the biggest differences now and what does the industry look like to you now 20 years in? Now it's huge. Uh, back then um, when you went, so one of the first uh, um, conventions that I went to was the Oregon Wine Symposium down at Corvallis. They used to have it in uh, I think it's the Holt Center. There's like a little, no, that's where the auditorium is. In Eugene. It, no, that was that was before. Oh my gosh. Before they used to have it on, on Corvallis' site. Oh they had like a little conference room. And uh, the, uh, it was the Holt Center. So that you could go into the auditorium, listen to the speaker, and then the, uh, what they called the um, the demos for the, for the vendors. There's six, seven vendors. It was crazy, and so, but then it was it was nice because that was what was just kind of first starting out and whatnot. There was one year it went away because there was enough money in in the industry to kind of keep it going, and then OVS and Kevin Chambers then took it and started it down in Eugene. Mm -hmm. So that's when they started it at the what the Hilton, I believe it was, mm -hmm. and so and after that it ballooned into what it is now. And now it's now now I go to the to the symposium. It's very hard to find somebody that you know. 
you know, then, I mean, it's, it, you knew everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, you get to go down and, and talk to everybody and get, catch up on what's kind of happening. Now, when you go to the, up into, up into the, up into Portland area at the convention center, you know, you got to search around and, and find people to, to talk to, mm -hmm. which is fun. <laughs> you get to meet a lot of new people, a lot of new, new, new ways of doing things. The vendor show up there is, is massive. So you get to learn a lot of different things on different techniques, how they do certain things. Um, fun one is I always take my or our winemaker's business card and I drop his business card in different vendors bucket so that way he gets cold calls every once in a while. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's, it's been great. And how have you seen uh, the farming style change in the, in the time you've been here? In, or the quality change? So yeah, there's a new way of uh, doing undervine management um, that's that's starting to take foothold. Uh, a lot of people are transitioning from herbicide use under the vines and they're starting to do what they call 100% uh, cover, different, different cover crops, different grasses underneath the vines. Um, it, it's good, it's great that they're able to do that. Uh, when we have 130 acres or certain sections of the property that are so rocky, we wouldn't be able to do weed management underneath those blocks even if we tried. And being able to keep the grasses knocked down and out of my fruit zone, I, I haven't fully committed to, to doing that just yet. It's, it's interesting watching how they do it and, and how they get the crops off and whatnot. Um, but it, it's, it's an interesting way of, of doing it. Hmm. And so what comes next for Oregon wine and for the and for specifically for Oregon wine viticulture? More technology about how to do things less with people and more mecha more mechanical. Because hmm. the, the amount of labor force that we have now in the industry has, has gone down tremendously. So when I first started in 2002, pretty much all the work crews were 100% men. And they were field labor contractors at the time that they would either come in or come in and work early in the morning from like say six to two, and then from two to seven at night, then they would go back and pick pickles or peppers or something like that for, for another farmer elsewhere, you know, go work on, work on a piece rate. Um, Egg in Oregon has changed a lot where they don't do the piece rate as much. Strawberries have kind of gone away, cucumbers have gone away, um, berries, berries in general really have kind of gone away where they're just going more mechanical on everything. So the, the, the hand pickers aren't needed as much. And so, plus they're actually not able to find the people as much to do the hand harvesting mm -hmm. as what they were in the past. So everything is transitioning more, more to mechanical. Mm -hmm. um, where, where it's nice here is pretty much everything that we can do mechanically, we, we do it already. We do mechanical hedging, we do mechanical leafing on about two, th or I'd say half of the property. The other half of the property, we start hand leafing the same time. We start mechanical leafing with the goal to get the leaves off in two weeks. So to pass over 130 acres, you can't really do it all. And one, because you don't have enough people, and two, you just, you just gotta do it as quick as you can because mm -hmm. the faster you get it off, the better the sunlight gets onto the fruit. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the, yeah, so basically the more, the more you can do with machines, the better. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that's coming out now where uh, they have mechanical wire razors for, for catch wire positioning. Um, I've seen two work. I'm not 100% sold on it just yet. Uh, our vineyard here at Banduzer is not set up properly for that one to happen. We have these little um, 
German-made uh, cross-arm holders that fold out uh, at the beginning of the season that hold your catch wires out about 18 inches. So as the buds start to grow up, and if they flop over, they'll flop over on the wire. And then all you gotta do is just close those back up again and basically just hold your wires up off the ground. Mm -hmm. Up at uh, Toma, for example, the wires are, we don't have those set up on that site. They're all seven foot rows, so you can't really have a cross arm sticking 18 inches out because in your tractor, it'll only be able to be about three feet wide. So uh, up there, it would work. Here, we wouldn't be able to use it unless I modified the vineyard. Um, pruning, uh, where we're different up here versus like say California is California, they do primarily cordon train mm -hmm. on everything. We do all single guy out, single single cane pruning or double cane pruning. So uh, there's certain things that you can do mechanically to speed that up, do a pre-pruner and, and cut brush out of the way that, that you know is gonna be garbage anyhow and then just only leave you know two thirds of the brush in there for the people to have less to pull out later. Um, where we're at with four foot cane, our canopy's only four and a half foot tall, so I'd only be able to trim the top six inches so it doesn't pay to get that, that expensive machine just yet. Mm. So, but yeah, just any, anything and everything that you can do to get stuff done mechanically, you know, in order to save the people for the jobs that have to be done by hand, mm. that's, that's where it's gotta go. Are you seeing that, trending in that direction at other vineyards? Yes. Yeah. yeah, certain vineyards that have always done hand hedging in the past, um, the vineyard management company has either purchased a hedger for the company and then they rent it to those guys or they're just, they're buying a hedger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of uh, undervine cultivation is, is happening where the people are going away from herbicide use and they're use, using the undervine cultivation to help as well. Because mm -hmm. paying people to go through with hand hose to hand hoe versus a machine to hoe, I mean, I would rather have 20 people do something else versus sitting on the back of a hole for three weeks straight. What about mechanical harvesting? We are dabbling a little bit in that. Uh, last year we did, I think it was close to 30 acres here on site. Um, it helped out a lot. Mm -hmm. For every machine that hits the valley, we're figuring that it frees up about 40 hand pickers to go someplace else to hand pick. Um, where, we, where we use it is for our we have a couple clients that we work for that they prefer machine picked fruit, and so that helps us out a lot. Um, I can machine pick the same time as we're hand picking, so then that frees up uh, not only um, time, but also gets the work done quicker. So like for example, this year we're looking to be harvesting around the mid, for first part of October to mid-October. Everybody knows it starts raining around the 15th of October. You pretty much set your watch to it. So anything that we can do to get the fruit off congruently at the same time, either hand pick the best, machine pick the, you know, the, 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 the class B fruit is what we call it, then that helps out in the end. Mm -hmm. Utilize your resources as, as it's best suited for. Mm -hmm. So what about for your future? What comes next for you? What are you looking ahead to? Just keeping on, keeping on, staying healthy. And uh, yeah, just, you know, doing, doing everything that we do on a daily basis to, to try to, you know, keep the vines healthy. Um, there's new, as everything kind of transitions, you know, like when I started in 2002, the, the 
leaf roll virus and whatnot was just basically barely starting. They had like one leaf roll virus. Now there's nine. Mm -hmm. And then they found out over time too that some of the vines that were red weren't testing positive for leaf roll, so now it's red blotch. So I have another one. So it's all the new things that are always, always changing, always happening, and how to adapt for that, uh, for that change. And, and trying to stay on top of everything. Always communicating with other vineyard managers, other vineyard management companies on what they're doing, how they're doing it, mm. to try to implement those new things into uh, what you're doing to make yourself better, to make your product that much better. And, and teaching them too what you're doing versus what they've done in the past and why you're doing it. You know, it always, always comes as a two-way street. This year was critical for that mm. with the frost event that we had. Can you tell there, me about that? There was a lot of phone calls that were happening after the April 26th. <laughs> like, what are you seeing? How are you seeing it? Mm -hmm. You know, what do you think is going to happen? You know, everybody said, you know, I called Joel. I think it was like three days after that. And Joel said, just go get yourself a bottle of whiskey. Go someplace for two weeks and don't talk to anybody. Just wait. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's a, it's a funny Joel uh, saying that he does. But basically, it's, it's true. You know, there's nothing that you can do for about two or three weeks. The vine's got to relax a little bit. It's got to start repushing, mm -hmm. and then once it starts to repush, then you'll see what you got. Mm -hmm. You know, as of right now, it looked terrible. You know, now, you know, if, if if I were to tell you now what I'm seeing in the vineyard and what I was going to see that in April, I told you you're high. And what we're seeing right now in the vineyards, it, it's it's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. How the vine responded to the frost event, and what we're seeing fruit-wise out in the vineyard, it's fantastic. It's as if nothing really happened. Hmm. Clusters are, are big. They're not overly big, but they're, they've overcompensated for themselves. Um, the cluster numbers are cut in half, but the cluster size are double what they normally were. <laughs> and so we'll, we'll get the tonnage that we needed, what we were hoping for, and we're going to live to survive another day. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that, uh, tell me about your experience in 2020. So 2020, that was a, that was a fun morning. Uh, so when that uh, Detroit fire hit, the lion's head, I think was what it's called. Uh, I was late to work by about a half hour that day because I normally wake up and sit in my chair and play with my dogs, watch the news and TV and whatnot. And my wife comes down a little bit uh, around 7.30 for her to get ready to go to work. And she looks at me and says, what are you still doing here? I said, it's still dark outside. It's not, and I, wasn't, I looked at my watch and said, oh crap. You know? <laughs> I look outside and said, what's going on? And I go out and it's, yeah, it's just that ribbon of, of smoke going over the top of us. I drove out to Van Duzer, and Duzer at the time was just right on the line of where the smoke was. We were still in the sunlight, but if you go into Dallas, you're in the shade. And so as the day progressed, that smoke line kept tr going further and further, further north. So in the afternoon, I went up to the Toma side up on Dundee, and it was about 90, 92 degrees up there, whereas Van Duzer was about 70. It just never, never got hot. And then that next morning after the, or, uh, the Clackamas fire hit, uh, yeah, that that was that was bleak. It was it was bad. Um, there was always always talk in the industry about how smoke affects wine, and whenever we'd have a small forest fire like in Southern Oregon, and that smoke could kind of drift up, it turned like this little minimal orangey hazy color. Everybody's all freaked out about smoke. That was smoke. You know, I mean, you'd go out there and you could taste it, you could chew it. You know, I'm driving down the driveway or coming off of Highway 22. You couldn't see the, the, the berm of Van Duzer at all. You know, it was like within a mile, two mile visibility, that was it. Um, and we we're about a week or two away from harvest. So when we're 
we're trying to figure out what to do, we're trying to figure out how to do it. All the clients that we had that were buying fruit, they were still in, in the market to get the fruit, they were still gonna take it. So that, that side of it was kind of put to bed, we were less nervous about that. But uh, as far as what to do and how to do it, uh, we were fortunate that Eric Kidd started to work here at Van Duzer when he did, because two years prior to that being down in California, he was used to having California fires and how to deal with it. So he, he knew what to do, knew how to do it went and bought the stuff that we needed to fix it and what he needed to fix it and we started picking fruit and, and doing things that we needed to do to get it off. Mm -hmm. uh, I have one picture of a guy, my, my lead labor uh, crew member when we were out picking it at, at uh, Dundee Hills and he's up there smoking a cigarette with you know 700 QUI index. It's absolutely hilarious. But uh, the crews were fantastic during the smoke event. Uh, the smoke lasted what about a week, 10 days before it finally blew away, and then we're able to kind of finish everything up. And we got all the fruit off, everything was, was okay. The wines that ended up coming off of that vintage, surprisingly, were very good. Mm -hmm. As long as you had a winemaker that knew what to do and how to do it, and wasn't scared to do it, it you had really good wine. Mm -hmm. And he, he, fixed, he fixed the wine at Van Duzer very, very good, very, very nicely. How do you balance in a situation like that, how do you balance sort of the need to, to handle the grapes with the need to keep your, your people safe at the same time? So that was uh, also, we were messing around with COVID at that time too. So that was the, the, the COVID year as well. And basically kind of COVID went to the wayside because that wasn't the problem anymore. You know, everybody was still masked up because now because of the smoke. <laughs> so, uh, but keeping the people safe, I mean, it, everything was all set up by whether or not they wanted to work. They did not have to work. You know, I, I made the, the request for the labor contractor that we needed 30 people to pick. You know, can we get the 30 people? So he made the phone calls and he says, yes, I can get 20 that are willing, willing to come out and pick still. And they came out and I says, okay, let's try it and see how it goes. You know, we'll only work three or four hours and then it'll, it'll happen. Mm -hmm. and, and they did it. The crews were fantastic. They, they plowed through it. You know, even under under the, the, the crappy conditions that we're in that particular year. Um, fortunately, the smoke event hit the Dundee site when only about a third of the fruit was really ready to be picked. When the smoke was in the air, nothing was happening. No, no ripening was happening. Everything was pretty much plateaued out. So once we got through with about the third of the fruit that was ready to come off, everything else just kind of sat in, the, in about a week lull. Nothing, nothing was really happening. Mm -hmm. Smoke went away, everything cleared up. You know, vines started to chug again, start happening, started ripening stuff up. Um, then we were able to go and, and kind of keep, keep rolling mm -hmm. and started back up again. So as you, uh, as you look ahead for the rest of your time working in the industry, uh, do you have any sort of goals in mind still? Anything you'd still like to accomplish that you haven't accomplished yet? Getting a 100 point wine would be fantastic. My joke always that I give these guys 99 point fruit. This is whatever they do with it to get it in a bottle. That's their business. You know. But I'd, it'd be nice to get it, to get 100 point. It'd be fantastic. That'd be uh, that'd be a goal worth achieving for sure. But basically, just you know, staying healthy and keeping the crew healthy, keeping everybody working, keeping everybody employed, keeping the company you know you know solid. That's 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 my goal. As long as I can get up and go to work and do what I need to do to keep everybody happy, that's, that's best. 
All right, that's all the questions that I have right. for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? I thought I'd think of. I think right. it was great. It was fantastic. Thank you. It Thank was you. fantastic. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time and your uh, stories here today. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.